Welcome to the Silver Lining Podcast, where we ask academics how East Asian states view themselves and how they relate to each other in the wake of the COVID pandemic. In today's episode, we chat with Wen Jiao Tsai, a PhD candidate in history and East Asian languages at Harvard University, about the environmental history of early modern Korea, such as agricultural settlements in the northern Korean peninsula during the 15th century. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Currently, I have three main research interests the environmental history of early modern Korea, the history of science and technology, and the borderland studies. My dissertation bridges these interests by looking at the role that environmental engineering and natural resource management played in Joseong Korea's state expansion. I'm particularly focusing on the incorporation and integration of the northern borderlands, Pyongan and Hamgyong provinces, from the 15th to the 19th century. I'm studying the way the natural environment both enabled and constrained Tosan's state expansion. I'm also writing about how non-human elements, such as crops, plants, and ecosystems were instrumental in the political and economic integration of borderlands. We're just interested in like why you have chosen um, the particular field that you have chosen to study, um, why this particular period of um, Korean history and why environmental history in, in Korea? Yeah, so um, both the topics, early modern Korean environmental history and borderlands are understudied, especially in English language scholarship. Even in South Korean scholarship, Joseon Kingdom's incorporation of its northernmost territories has mostly been studied from the perspectives of political and social, social history. But during my research, I came across copious records showing how Tosan state actors and settlers remade the agroecological structure of the northern borderlands. So I decided to study this overlooked link between Korea's environmental transformation and state expansion. This line of inquiry also sheds new light on the nature of early modern Korean statecraft. It's often thought that Joseon Kingdom's ruling class was indifferent to the natural world and the technological innovation when compared to their Western counterparts. But my research shows that in the process of integrating the northern provinces, the Joseon court promoted the study of the region's distinctive climate, terrain, plants, and minerals. Kings and their officials also invested in developing and managing natural resources. By examining the role the Joseon state played in remaking the natural environment of the northern borderlands, we get fresh insights into the state's infrastructural and technological capacity. At a broader level, I hope my work can bring to light how the environment shaped and was shaped by human societies in the past. I'm writing my dissertation at the time when accelerating climate change has brought about a reckoning with the way we humans relate to the environment. I want to use examples from the Korean Peninsula to show how human societies adapted to environmental change, or in some cases, failed to adapt. 
these past experiences continue to shape institutions, values, and practices in the region today. Great. Well, on that note, we want to transition to talking about your research on the agricultural settlement of the Northern Korean Peninsula during the 15th century. You mentioned that during this period, the Joseon regime sought to increase centralized control over Pyongan and Hamgyong provinces, the northernmost territories of the kingdom. In addition to expanding military outposts and administrative infrastructure in the borderlands, the Joseon regime relocated hundreds of thousands of peasant migrants from the southern provinces to help improve agriculture, to help improve agriculture in the north. Your research highlights the link between agricultural settlement and state expansion. So my first question is, what did the Northern Korean Peninsula look like in the 15th century, both politically and economically? And how was the region perceived by the Joseon state? During the Goryeo-Joseon dynastic transition in the late 14th century, territorial boundaries on the Korean Peninsula changed in important ways. These changes were especially profound in the North, where, of which the Goryeo dynasty had only loosely controlled. The Joseon state extended its administrative reach into the region by turning it into the two provinces of Pyongan and Hamgyong. In addition, by launching military expeditions and creating new administrative units, the regime pushed the boundary of Hamgyong province as far as the upper reaches of the Amnok River and the northern bend of the Tumen. The story I'm interested to tell is how these newly incorporated territories became integrated into the political and economic orbit of the Joseon Kingdom. During the 15th century, the northern provinces were sparsely populated. Local residents engaged in only limited dryland agriculture and hunting and foraging was still a prevalent means of subsistence. The agricultural landscape was starkly different from that of the southern provinces, which, was, which were the breadbasket of the kingdom. The distinctive agricultural landscape of the northern region contributed to its otherness in the eyes of central officials. These officials who came from the south fixated on what was lacking in the north compared with their home regions. They particularly noticed the lack of rice paddies and cotton cultivation in the north. Because rice and cotton cultivation had developed rapidly in the south, officials lamented that quote unquote, the potential of the earth in the north was being wasted. Interestingly, this contemptuous view of the landscape was also bound up with the state's perception of the northern society. Officials saw the northerners as ignorant and lazy and blamed them for being responsible for the underdevelopment of the land. For state officials then, both the northern land and its inhabitants needed improvement. Got it. So on that note, could you speak to a bit more about the process of relocating agricultural migrants from the south in the northern lands in order to rectify the perceived deficiencies that the Joseon state saw? What does this mean for the borderland development? Right. Um, one of my chapter's main aims is to show how the state reorganized the agroecological structure of the north by mobilizing migrants from the south, along with crops, draft animals, and technologies. This process began to homogenize biota 
on the Korean Peninsula. This also relates to a central argument of my dissertation project, that is, the Tosan State's northward expansion was not only a political and economic event, but also an environmental one. So during the 15th century, the most important agricultural practice introduced to the north were rice and cotton cultivation. I see two major motivations behind this policy. The first was economic. Rice had the highest yields among old world grains and was the backbone of the state's tax system. Cotton had been introduced to the Korean Peninsula fairly recently during the 14th century, but by the 15th century, it was already widely used as currency and collected as tax payment. So from the central government's perspective, popularizing rice and cotton in the north would help integrate the frontier economically with the rest of the peninsula. The second motivation for promoting rice and cotton was aesthetic. Officials saw the agricultural practices of the southern provinces as more developed. They expected the rest of the kingdom to conform to the standards set by the south. But of course, this aesthetic ideal failed to recognize that agricultural practices developed in the south were often ill-suited to the ecological conditions of the north. The ecological constraints contributed to the incomplete success of the state's borderland agricultural policies. First of all, the climate in the north was unforgivingly frigid, and the growing season was much shorter than in the south. Furthermore, due to the region's rugged topography, there wasn't much arable land readily available for rice farming. Because of the monsoon and mountainous terrain, summer floods were frequent and devastating, just like in North Korea today. In addition, because early settlers were unaccustomed to the climate of the north, many fell ill and oxen epidemics were rampant. Due to these constraints, the spread of rice was slow, especially in inland areas. Cotton never took root in Hamgyong province because the basal temperature there was too low to grow it. But we should not dismiss the significance of these early attempts to expand agriculture in the Northern Korean Peninsula. They were the first, they were the important first steps toward economic integration of the borderlands. The pursuit of agricultural improvement in the north also led the state on a constant search for more arable land. One of these undertakings was the reclamation of coastal tidelands, which significantly expanded grain production. By cultivating the northern lands, officials and the settlers from the south came to know the distinctive climate, terrain, and the natural assets of the region. This experience paved the way for the more systematic study and exploitation of the peninsula's natural world. Thanks for sharing that. I think it's really interesting to think about some of the main challenges that the Joseon State experienced and how that can still be very valuable for future development. Now in your work, you specifically compare Korea's biogeographic expansion with similar examples from other parts of the world. Could you speak more on this topic? Sure. The intertwined process 
processes of biological and territorial expansion I discuss in my work were taking place across the early modern world. Um, for example, scholars have argued that Russia's territorial growth between the 16th and the 19th centuries relied on the agricultural settlement of steppe frontiers, a process that brought sweeping environmental change to the empire's far-flung borderlands. Similarly, Alfred Crosby's ecological imperialism has shown that the transfer of old world plants and animals facilitated European expansion into the Americas and Australia. So my intention here is to write Korea into this early modern global history of biogeographical expansion. We know that around the 18th century, tired land re reclamation expanded into the northern borderlands, which allowed coastal residents to create arable land out of sea. How did this happen and what were its implications for state building in the northern region? As I've already mentioned, a perennial challenge state builder state builders faced in the northern borderlands was the shortage of arable land, especially for the cultivation of rice. Around the 18th century, Thailand farming spread in the coastal region of the Pyongan, Pyongan province, which greatly boosted the region's agricultural production. This development relied on a distinctive geographical feature of the Korean peninsula, which is the abundance of tidal flats along its west coast. If you go to South Korea today, as you get out of the Incheon airport and drive or take a shuttle bus to Seoul, look out your window and you will notice vast tidal flats stretching toward the sea. In Korean, the landscape is called Kepbol. Although appearing to be dark and lifeless, tidal flats are actually very rich in organic matter. With proper drainage and irrigation, they can be turned into fertile land. One chapter of my dissertation looks at how state builders and residents in the north turned the previously underappreciated tidal flats into one of the kingdom's most productive agricultural sites. One of the contributing factors to this change was the development of hydraulic technologies. As I've mentioned, rice was a mainstay of Tosan agriculture but successful cultivation of the crop depended on water supply. From early on, the state and elite landowners invested in hydraulic technologies to boost production. Over the centuries, through trial and error and accumulated knowledge, people on the peninsula developed an integrated hydraulic infrastructure that combined drainage, irrigation, and flood control. This technology laid the groundwork for tightland farming. Another important factor in the exploitation of tidal flats was the influx of wealthy land developers from the heartland. Successful tightland farming required an immense input of capital, labor, and time. After hydraulic infrastructure was installed, there was a long leaching process to get the land ready for full cultivation. Because coastal farms remained vulnerable to storms and floods, the facilities needed constant upkeep, and that called for even more money and manpower. This meant that you had to be extraordinarily wealthy and well-connected to run a coastal farm. 
the most success successful coastal land developers were royal relatives who had the wealth, experience, and power to operate coastal farms on an impressive scale. These landholders used various business strategies to secure long-term investments, distribute the risk, and find experts and laborers. One of these strategies was partnership. This involved, for example, inviting investors to contribute financially or to personally organize the building of the hydraulic systems. In return, investors received a share of the harvest or management positions at coastal farms. If the construction failed, land developers didn't have to bear the cost. Partnership allowed royal relatives to pool resources and constantly expand their operations. The large size and financial strategies of these borderland coastal farms set them apart from the smallholder farming in the southern provinces that previous scholarship has focused on. One of the goals of my chapter is to show that rather than being peripheral to Korean history, the borderlands were a crucial site of innovation in early modern Korea. But we'd love to know more apart from obviously changing agricultural production and the changes between wealthy land developers. How did the spread of tide land farming shape borderland society? Interestingly enough, most surviving petitions from 19th century Pyongan province concern disputes over coastal lands, hydraulic infrastructure, and taxation. These records show that Thailand farming was central to the power relations within coastal communities. In particular, large landowners wielded a lot of power over the locals who depended on them for employment. Many of the petitions are complaints about farm managers extorting taxes, taxes and fees from their tenants and workers. Another trend was the enclosure of the commons. Despite being underutilized as farmlands, tidal flats traditionally offered the locals a variety of subsistence resources because they were home to diverse marine life. But with the establishment of coastal farms, the royal land developers limited locals' access to coastal commons. In one petition I consulted, for example, a local resident who once collected duck legs freely around an island came to be charged a tax by a royal estate manager. How did this happen? Because now the palace owned farms in the area. The coastal landscape itself also complicated these conflicts. It was constantly changing under the forces of currents, winds, and extreme weather events. One day, a chunk of land could be washed away by currents, and on another day, a strip of sandbar might appear at the seaside, ready for reclamation. The changing landscape often distorted or blurred the boundaries of properties, causing legal ambiguity. In many cases, I see that managers or tax collectors from large farms were able to interpret the ambiguous landscape to their benefit. And that made the inequality in these borderland communities even worse. 
thank you for this overview of your work. Um, and maybe could you tell us a little bit more how your research helps us better understand North Korea today? Um, is there any link between what you have been studying and what you see um, in North Korea today? When I taught undergrad classes on Asian environments, I liked to assign North Korean leader Kim Il-sung's 1968 speech on Thailand reclamation or his 1964 speech on the effective use of mountain resources. From these speeches, you can sense a keen awareness of the shortage of arable land and the urge to maximize the use of the country's diverse ecosystems. You see an interesting parallel between these speeches and the Chosong era political discourses I studied. Another recurring theme in my dissertation is the fragility of Northern agriculture. Although I have shown that Northern agriculture improved over time, growing cultivation in the region remained vulnerable to the harsh climate and the natural disasters. For an extended period during the Chosong dynasty, feeding the Northern population depended on importing grains from the Southern provinces. Because harvest failure was such a regular event for Hamgyong province, the state designated special granaries from Gyeongsang province in the south to supply Hamgyong in times of famine. If we recognize the Northern Korean Peninsula's historic reliance on the inflow of grains from outside, we would not be surprised to see the catastrophic consequences in the 1990s when North Korea cut its ties with the international community and severed food aid to the famine-stricken regions. At the same time, I don't want to overstate the similarities between the pre-20th century and the present. What I seek to emphasize throughout my work is that the environment is not static or timeless and historical context matters for understanding why things are the way they are. With that in mind, I hope that my historical work can help readers appreciate that the political economy of the Korean Peninsula was deeply embedded in its ecological reality in the early modern period and still is today. You've just been listening to the Silver Lining Podcast with Yanhua Chen, Jiyun Moon, and Jaslyn Chagar. This podcast is a project from the Columbia Global Collaboratory, which seeks to tackle global challenges through cross-cultural collaboration. Thanks to our guest speaker this week, Wen Jiao Tsai, and thanks to you for tuning in.